just over eight months and what cost around $2 million, we finally have a full reporting of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. With a heavy heart, I have a lot to say on this week's Corey Truax Show. saying it on the Westminster Doxology podcast as a guest last summer when I was in Nashville. I found a quiet-ish corner of the convention center there and said to Bradley Cox and Cody Fields of that podcast, any organization that refuses to protect its women and children does not deserve to exist. And now after the full accounting and investigation of of about 20 years of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, we now as Southern Baptist or Great Commission Baptist, whatever one you prefer, now have the opportunity or the challenge to prove that we exist. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. I don't like trigger warnings, but I will give a listener advisory. We're going to talk about some very hard things. I I don't want to do what I found a lot of folks who do what I do. They talk into microphones or at least part of their living or all of it to do some type of performative sadness, performative sackcloth and ashes. But nevertheless, a great deal of the subject matter is worthy of sackcloth and, sackcloth and ashes. That's the biblical reference there, of the, the ancient way of showing just this deep sorrow. And so I know, uh, with an audience of even my tiny size, there are those who are, that have been deeply affected in a very personal way, by the abuse of folks you should have been able to trust. And so while the this might be the entire show, I want you to know going in, that's the topic. If you're not in the headspace for it, that's okay. But uh, I have some things to say about what we just all found out. And that is in lead up to what was, well, I guess we're about three weeks out now, for he- me heading out to Anaheim. Our pastor Doug's going to go out as well. His wife is also my sister-in-law, Marley. And we got to deal with all of this. So let's get to it. I I'm going to assume you don't have all the details because the Southern Baptist Convention, while being the largest Protestant collection of churches in the country, it is still only about 40,000 churches. It's only about 14 million people. We have 330 million in the country. So let's just say you don't have all the details. You do need to know. I promise you this, even if you're outside the convention, there are details here that just as a believer you need to know, and I think we can all learn from the mistakes made here. Let me just start with some background, some context, context, and some facts of the case. For years, there were rumblings, rumors, of real problems with managing those who had violated, abused young children or women in Southern Baptist churches. As far back as 2006, there was a request, a resolution proposed at one of the gatherings of the convention to create a database. Someone requested a database of those who had been accused or convicted of abusing children or women. All the way back in 2006, that that request was not heeded. The executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention did not listen to it. A lot of those rumblings and rumors came to a real head in a 2018 story from the Houston Chronicle who went ahead and published very credible 
allegations from women, some boys, against leadership of churches that were in the Southern Baptist Convention. And disturbingly at the time, I recall, these women and these children had told their stories, had had laid their allegations at the feet of powerful people in the organization, in the convention. And while the convention took no action, the Houston Chronicle did, and they told those stories. And then I remember, that took us to 2018 in Birmingham. I remember going with our Beachwood Church's lead pastor, Doug, also one of my greatest friends in the whole world, Adam, was there. And we sat for well over an hour and listened to some really harrowing stories of women who had been victimized by those in power. And then J.D. Greer, who had run for president of the Southern Baptist Convention in part on a platform of dealing with sexual abuse, led us through a time of lament, it's a good biblical word, of sorrow, of repentance for what had happened. But that wasn't... That wasn't the end. There was lamentation. Uh, the, the Chronicle had told a story, and that led to a real repentance and lamentations. But the people, the polity that make up the convention, they were not finished. There was an attitude saying, yes, it's terrible that this happened, but what are we going to do to stop it? How? Uh, what, what is the, uh, the word I'm looking for is, the anatomy. What's the anatomy of how this took place and where might blame be laid and so in Nashville last summer, the people that make up the Southern Baptist Convention, not its leadership, the people demanded, investigate. You don't investigate yourself, get a third-party investigator, and let's find out what happened so that we might make sure it doesn't happen again. Because, as I will say again, an organization that does not protect its women and children does not deserve to exist. And despite some powerful people in the convention in Nashville trying to obfuscate, that third-party investigation was launched. It led to quite the response for people on the executive committee. At least 17 of them left. They just resigned because they didn't want to give up privilege. They didn't want to waive their right to certain kinds of privacy because here we, here we are as a convention, millions of people asking we need to know what happened. How did we get this so wrong for 20 years? And after that response from leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention and then the investigation, the report has come. Judgment Day has arrived. Russell Moore called it the revealing, he called it the apocalypse, but the word apocalypse means revealing. Al Mohler, one of the most respected voices in all of Southern Baptist life, called it God's judgment. God's judgment is both for judging of the wicked, it's for the purifying of his people. Certainly, good can come from judgment. But that's what we are walking into. So, I have a way to explain this to you in a way that I think is digestible, useful, and to also make you informed. We, we tend to measure being informed by whether or not you know what's going on in Washington, D.C., or state capitol, or maybe what's going on in pop culture. This is me trying to help you be informed, be an expert, on a major thing happening with the one institution that will be around for a thousand years and then a thousand more and for all of eternity. That's the church. Now, 
The Southern Baptist Convention isn't the church. If the convention fell apart tomorrow, the Church of Jesus Christ would be just fine. It's a useful tool. The convention's really helpful. But it's the, this is one of the biggest things happening in the global church right now, so you should be informed about it. I want to start with a little bit of Scripture that I thought of as I was reading through the report and then listening to some audio versions of it, the part, portions that had been read. I, I thought of Ecclesiastes 12. I think it's 12. It says, God will bring every act and every hidden thing to judgment. It says something like that. It's a good word if you're listening to me right now and you are hiding something. You are hiding something from your spouse, from your church, from close friends, from your parents. You have a secret. It's one of the heaviest things to carry. Man, I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of people. One of the hardest situations in life is to have to carry a secret. You can't share it with anybody else. Some of you are holding on to a secret because you are doing something you should not be doing. I want these times to bring fear. I want fear strike, struck, struck into those who would victimize, who would take advantage of others. And let this be a Let's be a reminder that those things done in darkness will come to light. If not in this life, then the next. With that said, here's how I think this is best explained. Often when I read narratives in the Bible, or for that matter, parables, anytime there's a part of the scriptures that includes characters, and I'm trying to map out or chart out what the story might be about in all the several layers of the story, I like to do it by the characters. So if, if I'm doing the good, Samar- well, the good Samaritan, I want to chart out the, the man who was attacked. I want to look at the thieves. I want to look at the actual Good Samaritan, the, the priest or the, the church official who, or excuse me, the synagogue official who walked by, and let's see what we can learn from each character. I think that's the best way to explain and work through this complicated mess. We're going to look at the characters in the story. We're going to start with the victims of abuse, the offenders. We'll talk about the executive committee, what they got wrong, and how that actually works. We'll talk about the convention itself, and then the people who make up the convention. All of these are different characters in the story. And then finally, some of the recommendations that this report has on how to prevent this going forward. Because this first group is, I think, ultimately the most important. I want to talk about them first, the victims, and then take a break. I want them to get their own spot And then we'll come back and talk about all the other characters in the story. In part, this report found over 700 offenders of women and children. And of that group, I think it was just under 400 that were in Southern Baptist churches, maybe even now, but the offense took place in Southern Baptist Baptist churches. One particular story, I kind of need you to get a taste of how bad this is. There was... One story of a Debbie Vasquez, who at the age of 14, started to be raped by her pastor. I need to sit in it for a second, guys. I know that's not comfortable. Someone she would have been taught to trust. Someone held up. Someone to emulate, respect, and to honor. That man, I shouldn't call him a man, that biological male took that advantage to regularly rape 
this young girl. After having moved on to another church, it was discovered she was pregnant, and she had to stand in front of that church to publicly confess her sin and not ever say the name of the father. A grown man, or a grown adult, taking advantage of a young girl, and she gets the blame and the dishonor, and he goes free. That's one of the stories. Debbie Vesquez had to tell her story first to the Houston Chronicle. I remember reading it back in 2018, or 19, I can't remember, well, that was 18. There are more stories like that. And the fact that we have 700 names written down tells me that there's untold more. That was the assumption with the Catholic Church, right? That's the assumption we even make here lately as we're getting more reports of the number of hundreds of students in, in public schools who are molested or have sexual relationships with their teachers, which I would still call molested. That's adults having sex with children. That's, that, is a, that should be a crime. And we, we hear what happened with the Catholics, or we see the reports in public schools, and we assume that's just the ones we know about. And what I see with this report is, yeah, this is just the ones we know about. And so these victims, I, I don't, there is no such thing as restitution. Especially the, the ones who tried to stand up for themselves, tried to get justice, and they were rebuffed and turned back and made to feel guilty, told that their going forward with these allegations could ruin the mission of God. For, for them, no, there, there is no real restitution. There's no way to make it right. But I do want to go into this break with just recognizing the consequences of sexual abuse, especially for a child, not just for a child, but for anyone who is physically taken advantage of, sexual pleasure taken from them without any kind of consent and no power and getting no justice, it, it stays with you forever. The Lord can do miracles and the Lord can heal so that it doesn't have to affect somebody forever. But beyond the Lord doing a miracle, that affects somebody for the rest of their lives. And so before we hit this, before we hit this break and come back and talk about the other characters in the story, just want to hold up the reality that we are to love those who have been victimized, support them, and where possible, we'll, we'll talk about the logistics of this later, try to get justice every way we can. When we return, let's talk about everyone else in the story. The offenders, the committee, Southern Baptists themselves, the convention as a concept. Where do we go from here? We'll do that. And maybe a little more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. The report has been issued, and it is ugly. Last summer, the vast majority of members of Southern Baptist churches who came together in Nashville demanded a reckoning. We want to know what's been going on the last 20 years or so with the leadership of the convention and how they're handling allegations of sex abuse. We have those results, and we are walking through it together on the Corey Truax Show here on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you're so inclined, you can connect to me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just look for me in my very weird name. You can also find me at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, if you have anything you want to offer as well. We are going to go through the story by examining the characters. First, we just talked about the victims, that we care for victims, want justice for them, and to prevent any more victims from becoming so. Next, the offenders. There are names named here. It was named that Johnny Hunt, pastor of a large church in Georgia, kind of a mainstay in the Southern Baptist Convention, is credibly accused of assaulting a woman in her hotel room, a woman he knew, the the wife of another pastor. He says this never happened. The investigation investigators found him to be not credible, that other contemporary witnesses at the time can attest to his uh, advances towards this woman. He's a, he's a real, I think we have enough evidence to say, you're, you're not qualified to be in leadership. Offenders need consequences. It became clear that Paige Patterson, his name is named here, that we have, uh, th- that he mishandled. I mean, if he lost his job over it. He's already faced some consequences. He's being sued over it. That's good. There's, there's an entire web of issues on how he protected those who might be dangerous to, to women, and he needs to be needs to face consequences for it. Offenders, those who do these things, I want justice. The justice for Johnny Hunt is to face whatever consequence would be there. I think with him, it's just pri- it's primarily professional. With Paige Patterson, he has faced professional consequences, losing his job as a seminary president, but he's also being sued. We'll see how that goes. We've had the consequences for Frank Page from right here in South Carolina. We don't know the details, but he had to resign that job. Where possible, when we know who when we can verify an offender did any given thing, there must be consequences. People who lead just because they were leaders, because they're prominent, does not make them immune from facing the consequences of their actions. Where it's possible to criminally prosecute, that should happen. If someone was so negligent as to put people at risk, put children and women at risk, exposing them to someone who is of high risk, if it's possible to get criminal Alleg- not well, there, the word, there's not allegations or convictions. It is charges. To be criminally charged, let's do that. That should happen. Where we can't get the, uh, the, the sphere sovereignty figured out, where there, there are things that leave the Christian church, when a crime has been committed, we refer that to the governments of the world, we refer that to law enforcement, where that's not possible because of statutes of limitations or there's... Not enough, not enough of the right kind of evidence to get this kind of charges. We still need to be made aware. We need some kind of adjudication to recognize if someone actually is guilty or has been accused. We have the victims that we honor and want justice for, and how do you get justice for a victim? Well, every time an offender is discovered, there has to be consequences. If what they did is criminal, criminal consequences. If what they did is outside of the of the definition of their their, uh, their their calling, as it were, then they're out of ministry. If they're in leadership, they don't get to be in leadership anymore. If we have credible allegations of misgivings, we have, we have to punish the offenders. Third set of characters here. 
is the executive committee itself. This is where it gets a little confusing for those outside the Southern Baptist Convention, and I want to help clarify it. Unfortunately, a lot of those offenders I just talked about come from this executive committee. Here's a quick little lesson. I know we don't want to get into the weeds too deeply. The Southern Baptist Convention is an entity unto itself. It is a convention of churches. We are not a denomination. We are autonomous churches who partner together voluntarily to ask to be more effective. Then there's a, a whole other separate body called the Executive Committee. They run the day-to-day operations because the convention only gets together for a couple of days every year. The Executive Committee runs the day-to-day operations out of Nashville for this very large organization. They are chosen, the people who run the day-to-day operations, are chosen by trustees. Those trustees are in part chosen by a fairly convoluted process where people in the convention can approve or disapprove trustees. Admittedly, I think, as someone who's gone to it many times now, don't like that process. The trustees placed before you to vote on, you know very little about them. You're counting on other people to have vetted them properly. But trustees choose leadership for that committee that really runs everything. But again, that committee is different than the convention. The committee's interest is the convention's interest. They want to protect the convention. And what we found as this report comes out is some of the most most recent presidents, people like Ronnie Floyd, Frank Page, and Morris Chapman, a, a lot of them, or all three of them, were presented with credible allegations of abuse against women and children in the convention, and under advice of counsel, just constantly chose the institution. They looked at humans in the image of God harmed by men, but knowing that facing the consequences of that could could lay a real burden on the institution that is the Southern Baptist Convention or the Gospel the Great Commission Baptists, they just kept hiding and interfering and under the advice of these lawyers, stonewalling, even going through tactics to make women feel guilty for coming forward. What I primarily, I think, can come out of that, the reading of it I have done and listening to the reporting I have, is this thing, the executive committee. This is where our problem is. It's really it's quite clear that it appears the trustees that are supposed to be overseeing the leaders didn't really know what was ever going on. None of the leadership ever led on. And that very normal Southern thing, but I think Christian thing, and I think it's just about institutions generally. You just trust your leadership. You have this almost like positive bias that if they're in a position of leadership, they must have done something to earn it. Well, here's what we found is that they were given credible allegations of sexual abuse or assault, and because of the attorneys, they just kept getting in the way. And by getting in the way, I just mean not properly responding, not investigating to investigating allegations, giving no resources to finding out if something is true. One of them, one of those leaders, Ronnie Floyd, in the last several months and eight or nine months, has resigned because he didn't want to waive his privilege. He knew what was coming. 
his emails will be found to be choosing to protect the institution at all costs, even at the cost of people. I also found the the, the villains. I, I I look I go into these things not looking for a villain, but I went into reading it finding them. And the primary issue here is leadership that had some old guard ways of thinking and had no real accountability and can just listen to lawyers. These are, The attorneys are, are some of the worst people I, I read in this, in this report. They had the one goal. Their one goal, protect the Southern Baptist Convention. Whatever it does to anybody else. We're not going to have this convention liable, legally, financially. They have this one higher goal. And listening to them talk about it, I understand how they convinced themselves of it. They did. It's clear to me they convinced themselves. This convention's too important. It's hundreds of missionaries worldwide. It's thousands of church plants around the world churning out curriculum after curriculum for the discipleship of children and teenagers and adult Sunday school classes. It's true, a very real disaster relief around the world. We have resources we send. It is the seminaries by which the next generation of church leaders come up. The, the, uh, the idea, the internal argument is, this organization is so important, even if that means... Not doing justice for someone who is victimized, we have to protect the institution at all protect the institution at all costs. We also found in reading the report that as, as early as 2007, those attorneys and leadership in the executive committee started collecting names of people either accused of or convicted of, proven to be to be abusers. 409 people of the original 700-person list, it appears, were working in SBC churches at the time they collected the names. And these core leaders just continue to choose the entity over the people. This is where that axiom I've now given you twice comes into play. Any institution that will not protect its women and children does not deserve to exist. And this is where we have we do have to choose this reality. Doing the right thing, getting justice, people being punished when they do the wrong thing, that is so important that if it harms the work of the convention for some time, that's worth it. Hear me say that. That might be hard. And that it should uh, but you know what? It shouldn't be. I I look at the other institutions that have gone through massive sexual abuse scandals. And yeah, their their work is hurt. Their progress is impeded. But they are better for it in the end, and their work continues. That's what I want for this convention. But we have to go through that process first. Punish wrongdoers. Get justice for the victimized. Choose people over the entity. If the entity takes the hit, if the organization takes the hit, okay. This is in part what I meant today by you can... This is a story that can apply to everybody. We have in our jobs, families, churches, often the opportunity to ignore injustice or ignore the wrong thing to protect the family, the institution, the church. 
This is a good warning today. Stop ignoring it. It could hurt. It could be uncomfortable. Stop ignoring what's wrong. And let's go after justice. Let's go after the right thing. So I, I'll admit, I'm super disappointed and very sad about the executive committee and some of those at the highest levels of leadership. And that's where I want to focus our ire and our reform. Getting the right people in the right places so as to prevent these things. So we have the victims that we feel for and want justice for. We have the perpetrators, the offenders, and we want them punished however they can be. We have an executive committee that is in desperate need of tables being turned over and a great deal of reform happening there. And then there are two more entities that make up this story, and then I have I want to walk through the recommendations this group gave. Then there are there is the polity, the people who make up the Southern Baptist Convention. I just gave you some names, talked about hundreds of people who are offenders, and then there is this reality. The people who have showed up to the Southern Baptist Convention have been concerned about this. They asked for that database in 2007. In 2018, we all got together after that Houston Chronicle story broke, and we finally got some confirmation of what was rumblings and rumors when we found out it's very real. We affirmed in overwhelming fashion, not just resolutions to express our lament and sadness and repentance. We heard from victims for a long time when we were there in Birmingham. They got a lot of stage time, as they should have. And then elected a, actually before I even get there, affirmed a resolution that's not binding, that we wanted binding, that there would be power for a, a particular committee called a credentials committee that's getting into the weed some, that if we find a church is not dealing with their any kind of abuse issue, that they're expelled and we make very public. We are This church is being removed from the convention. It's because they're not taking seriously the offenses happening against women and children in their midst. In 2017 or 18, can't remember, I think it's 17, running on a large part on a platform of dealing with our sexual abuse issue in Southern Baptist Convention, the polity elected J.D. Greer. The people have been asking for something. This investigation does not happen if the people that make up the Southern Baptist Convention don't force it to happen last summer in Nashville, and they did force it. And we're getting the judgment that we all wanted. We wanted the truth. I also know this. We think it's around 15 million people, it's a little bit less, Say we say go to Southern Baptist churches. Vast majority this week, we're going to love their spouses. They're going to raise their kids. They're going to go to work. They're going to coach in Little League. They're going to have small talk around the water cooler. They're going to go to church on Sunday and serve in the nursery faithfully, distribute communion to the saints. They're going to sing and hear the word preached. They're going to go home and do it again. That's what the vast majority of the polity are doing. I think that's an important thing to remember. We, I should say, I don't want to ask 14 million people who are serving faithfully to pay for the sins of the executive committee. I, I know there is an instinct 
that just says it's it's rotten to the core. This institution's rotten to the core. Tear it up. Tear it, tear it down. Burn it down. And what I'm what I'm saying to you is what what I found in that report is the vast majority of people want this thing solved. I mean, I don't want to get too feely and emotional on this, but my suspicion is that there's not a church in the convention that does not have somebody who's been abused. Maybe it didn't happen at church. But we just know the, the epidemic of mostly men who've used their power their influence for really evil intentions. I suspect that the normal Southern Baptist really wants some ju- justice here. And so I, I don't. I, I look at this executive committee and the people who make it up, and I see their motives for trying to hide it because they're trying to protect the convention, and I see offenders and violators, and I want justice for all of them. And then I look at just faithful people giving and living and worshiping, and I don't want that torn down. I think the polity has largely wanted the right thing, and while the right thing has hurt very badly, it's finally come with the information we need to get justice and prevent terrible things from happening in the future. One last member of the story. There are the victims. There are the perpetrators. There's this executive committee who has done many misdeeds and needs to suffer justice and get justice for it. There's the polity who's largely tried to do the right thing. And then there is finally the convention itself. Let me just give you my heart on this. Uh, the, the church, the, the Lord doesn't need this other Baptist convention. I, I fully accept that. And it's a flawed institution, as they all are. There's a lot of good that comes out of it, though. I look at hundreds of missionaries worldwide. Thousands of church plants. The disaster relief I talked about. Care for the elderly. I mean, like, for pastors and preachers who didn't have retirement plans, taking care of them in their old age. Millions in resources. When I say resources, I mean all the curriculum, the discipleship that people use. Coming together to partner to create those things. The seminaries mean a lot to me that we would have doctrinally sound, faithful men and women going out to lead churches in their appropriate roles. There's a lot good here to save, but it is not worth saving if we don't get the first thing right and you have to protect your vulnerable to be getting the first thing right. Speaking of, that's what I want to do when we come back the recommendations of how to prevent these things from going forward and try to make right what has happened. I will give you the recommendations from the report when you come back for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. It has been a heavy one today as we have looked around the report on on sex abuse inside the Southern Baptist Convention. We've worked through all the characters in the story, gotten quite a few of my thoughts, and just I want to finish this discussion up with some recommendations. It was like 15 pages of recommendations that Guidepost Solutions, that's the ones who conducted the investigation, some solutions they give to prevent the future, try to make right what's happened. I picked out six that I thought were helpful and practical and things we should do. 
Number one, they say create a new entity for abuse allegations, meaning this. So the Southern Baptist Convention has a lot of entities. We have the North American Mission Board. We plant churches. We have the International Mission Board. We train missionaries and send them all the way around the world. We have Send Relief for disaster relief. We have a gu- Guidestone or Capstone. I can't remember what it's called right now. For retirement, retirement funding for, uh, for folks. We have a lot of ent- entities. Our seminaries, our, our, our entities. They're saying create another one because the executive committee is not capable. It's not their job. They don't know how to do it. The other, the other options that uh, folks have given out are not equipped, trained, don't have the resources to investigate and accept allegations. I agree with this. This is, it's, at some level, not any different than a giant organization having a division of their human resources office that you can level these complaints with. And let's staff it with a couple lawyers. Let's have investigative powers. And this idea of church autonomy uh, is, is still there. Like, it's just the convention saying, hey, we've picked up this allegation. What are, what are you doing? What's your documentation of how you're adjudicating it? They can, every local church can have their own first policy. And if we're not satisfied with it, we can take next steps. And then also to go over that church's head if something criminal is being alleged to go straight to law enforcement because no local church gets to hold criminal offense inside its walls. We we let law enforcement know when criminal intent has been alleged. Not, not intent, when criminality has been alleged. So creating a new entity, I'm on board. Good idea. Let's do it. I know that'll be expensive, but worthwhile. Two, we need a database of abusers. The only uh, drawback on this is, who do you put in it? Do you put in people who have allegations or people who have committed a crime or has been confirmed? Like there's been some kind of investigation and we have confirmed. There was, there, there was abuse here. There was, a, there was a, a harassment. There was assault. Like what kind of details are we giving? Because I, I would argue someone, making an, someone just making a complaint is not a good enough reason to put someone in a database of offenders. But after adjudication, whether that's through the criminal system or through the convention itself, through the church itself, and have consequences. If if we find that you have not submitted your names that are uh, should be in this database, we need to be able to publicly say, hey, this church, they had this child molester that they, have on, that they brought on staff, allowing to volunteer in these different ways. We asked for accountability with them. They told us no. And make very public so that folks know not to go around that place. Which leads to number three. So number one, create a new entity to investigate abuse allegations. Two, we need a database of the abusers. Three, we need a database of expelled churches. A a few churches over the last couple years have actually been removed from the convention for various doctrinal reasons. And I think we should. I think we should have a, a database of churches that we've expelled and why. And that might be because of not being in compliance with best practices regarding sex, sex abuse and its, uh, and its adjudication. And heck, I mean, I think we've, we have kicked out churches for ordaining women, for being associated with like an actual white supremacist group. We've kicked out churches. Let's make public who we kicked out and why. 
Let's, let's name names. That's, that's how you protect people. Four, this one's hard, compensation for victims. I don't know how to do it. I'm, I'm okay, obviously okay with doing it. This is how reparations are actually supposed to work. The person who was violated is compensated by, supposed to be, the person who did the wrongdoing. In this case, systems and structures who are made up of people caused, uh, created an inability to get justice. And so while I prefer that Frank Page and Don, Ronnie Floyd and, and guys who actually did the, uh, did the, the stonewalling, I want them to pay. I want them to be the ones that have to, to, to be sued. I get the argument that the institution itself was not being run properly and is therefore in some way liable. That, that really could wreck the convention. I, I should slow down. I am not going to whistle past the graveyard here and pretend that that could possibly, if not end the convention as an organization, greatly hamper its ministry. At the same time, I, I, there's something in me that just says, that's, that's worth it. There's got to be some kind of compensation for victims, recognizing their pain, distress, and the convention's leadership's own negligence and unwillingness to make it right. Number five on the recommendation is limit non-disclosures. You know, a, a lot of things get to live in the dark because we get the lawyers involved and then there's non-disclosure statements. When it comes to these matters, abuse, harassment, uh, assault, these are things that cannot be hidden in the dark. We need transparency and show that they are... Uh, that, these people, here's, here's who did what, because we have to protect the vulnerable. And then final recommendation, they wanted to put something on the Southern Baptist calendar. They called it Survivor Sunday. I prefer something else, like a sexual assault. Um, let's go with victim. Uh, sur survivor and victim have two different connotations. I prefer not to use the word survivor, but whatever. I think that's worthwhile doing. What's been made clear through this investigation, but also some other things I've just seen in the culture with the school system. We go back to the Catholic Church, USA Gymnastics. We apparently in the United States have a real problem with abuse. And so even if someone was not abused by someone in a Southern Baptist church, having something on the calendar that recognizes some appreciable number of people in our congregations have suffered at the hands of evil men, sometimes evil women, mostly evil men. The consequences of suffering that abuse are inexpressible. It's deep wounds that last for years, so, sometimes, unfortunately, never healing. And so having a Sunday on the calendar where we just take some time and talk about that, I think that's worthwhile. There's more recommendations. You can find all of them. It's a very easy document to find. You can actually even find it at sbc.net, sbc.net. You can get all, the, all of those links if you want to get into it. I want to sum it up this way. We, we have a good thing in the, in the convention. Churches working together for the spread of the gospel is a good thing. We have a lot of very healthy local associations. It is good that we partner together. And in that partnership, we have 
we've now found we have been led by poorly motivated and wrongly prioritizing men who chose the good work of the institution over the men and women who can be hurt. And so I'm, it's time we choose it, and to cho- choose the people, not the institution. When we get together next month, we're going to hear from uh, the Sexual Abuse Task Force. I suspect we'll vote on implementing a lot of these things. And I, th- I think it's time to do that thing I started from the beginning. I'm, I'm going to give us one last topic before we go, but I started with that statement. If you don't protect your women and kids, you don't deserve to exist. Well, in about three weeks, the largest de- Protestant denomination in the country gets to prove that it deserves to exist by responding to this report, full-throated, in repentance and lament, and then humbly implementing systems to prevent it from happening. Okay, I think I have one or two more things I want to tell you about this week. I know this is impossible to transition, but here we go. One is this. You know how uh, last week I exegeted the culture by going over that song from Kane Brown, Worship You? By the way, that friend Adam I mentioned earlier sent me another country song that we're going to go over at some point soon. Uh, something about leave the judging to Jesus. We'll do that. But this is this is that, that brain of mine that is always looking for meaning in things. That s- songs do tell deeper stories. But one of the art forms that tells deeper stories that I think it's overlooked a lot, especially in the modern world, is architecture. In part, it gets overlooked because we have become a very functional people. We build spaces to function. Architecture doesn't tell stories anymore. That It's one of my favorite hobbies, actually. I love a lot of the history of architecture. When I go to big cities, I try to find not the just the bus you can get on or the big double-decker van, or excuse me, that that's a bus, and ride around. I like those. Those are fun, but what you can find... A, a specific, uh, the architecture tour, and you learn really the, the history of that city through its buildings. There's a lot of cool stories there. I'm just I'll give you one example. On a New York City tour, I found, I think it was on 8th Avenue, you can see the difference between 8th and 5th on, uh, on which ones figured out load-bearing structures earlier because it was a long time before architects could figure out how to transition weight to different columns in the building um, because the, the desire on Fifth Avenue was here on, on Madison Avenue or Fifth Avenue. We want big glass front so everyone can see into our stores and have lots of natural light. People want to come in and shop. But we didn't know how to do that. You had to build with brick. You had to build with cinder block because it had to hold all the weight. And when, we, when architects finally figured out how to do that, how to transfer weight, well, they were able to do that on Fifth Avenue first, and you'll go down Fifth Avenue and just see walls of glass, but even just over a few on 8th, you don't have a lot of that. And you can see the, the story of the city through architecture. I saw that this last week in Greenville. So I think that's very encouraging to me. If you're not uh, from the upstate, I highly encourage spending some time in Greenville, South Carolina. It's worth a vacation weekend, maybe a vacation week. There's plenty to do. I, I love this town. Admittedly, I live outside of it over in Easley, but... I love Greenville. I love that it's growing. I know a lot of you don't. That I love that the whole world is coming here. It's fun. And just a couple of weeks ago now, or maybe it was last week, the city of Greenville opened a new park called Unity Park. It's magnificent. 
the amount of activities there, the the playground for children is state of the art. It's not. It's, it's like the Disney level playground. It's like something I've never seen. There's a little water spout function. That's also for the kids, and then some other sports and climbing walls things. It's primarily designed for children, but that adults can use, and just a ton of space to play. Architecture tells stories. And that park tells me so much about the values of Greenville. Here's why. The Lord has been good and that I get to travel a lot, especially to a lot of big cities. And what I find more and more over the last several years is I travel to New York and Nashville and Philadelphia and, uh, and Denver and all the places I've gotten to go. We build so much architecture now in big cities, for dogs. Dog parks are endless. The infrastructure we build to actually have water bowl filling stations on the street or in the park, the the uh, the infrastructure we build to dispose of their waste, cities have very intentionally built spaces for to be easier to have a dog. And I'm cool with that because I love dogs, love my dogs. Greenville built, though, its brand new park, and it almost seems like they built it specifically with children in mind. Not your dog, but your kids. That says a good thing about Greenville. That this thing that's happening in the world of millennials and the younger folks who are replacing children with dogs, that there's still a contingent here that believe it's a good thing for men and women to get married and have some kids. I recognize always when I say this, I want to be sensitive to those that wanted kids and couldn't have them. Just making a cultural statement here about our values. It's very good that we built an entire park that's friendly to kids and not just our wonderful four-legged friends. That's just an observation I made about the world I wanted to share. Friends and listeners, I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Act Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.